are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, though they're arguably Harrison and Star, Cliff and Bobo. Cliff. Bobo, how are you doing today? Good, man. How's it going with you? It's going all right. Uh, fires seem to be more, I can't say under control. I think it's I think it's 13% contained, but the skies are blue for the first time in a couple weeks. Uh, the museum is back open. I'm back in my home after evacuating, so it's right. a lot better. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so you guys had 10 days straight of hazardous air conditions. Yeah. <laughs> so we got a big honor today for us showing up on the chat with us. That's what I understand. I'm excited about it, and I think our uh, listenership should be as well. Yep. We got the esteemed Doug Hycheck. He was the creator of uh, first the first I, I met Doug actually back at the Willow Creek Conference at the dedication to the Bigfoot Museum there in Willow Creek. And he showed up with Matt Moneymaker and Autumn Williams. They were filming Mysterious Encounters. People remember that? It was on uh, Outdoor Life no, out, Network, right? Outdoor Life, yeah, OLN out of Canada, Outdoor Life. And it was the most popular show in the history of that network before they switched it over to some other name. But anyways, yeah, then he did Monster Quest, which you and I did that together, but Doug wasn't there that time. But yeah, I've known Doug for, gosh, 17, 18 years now, and he's uh, icon. He's all he's done other stuff besides that, but he's just uh, been a big contributor. We'll get into that about a PG film, and he's been, um, he's been on the Bigfoot scene for a good 20 years now, and he's got a lot of great information, good stories, and good guy, and here's Doug Hycheck. How you doing, guys? We are doing great, Doug. How are you doing, more importantly? I'm doing good. Doing good. It's getting cold here, but we're uh, we're surviving. Summer's over. Yep. Solstice tomorrow, I think, right? Real soon. Are you guys getting the smoke from us out there in Minnesota? Yes, actually, we are. Um, the air quality here today is good, and yesterday was good, but before that, it was, you know, it was pretty bad. I mean, we were... I hate to tell you guys, but it's been clear skies here for about five or six days. Just beautiful blues, little warm breezes off the ocean. It's couldn't be nicer. Oh. Sorry, Cliff. It's all right, man. Well, well, let's get jump into this Doug thing, man. Yeah, I, I got into the scene. Actually, got really interested in 1991 when we came across footprints up in the Arctic, and we had just stopped to take a potty break. Go, you know, brought the boat on the beach, and then there's footprints coming out of the water onto the beach, up into the uh, into what we call the forest up there, which was 27 foot tall stunted trees, because we were right on the tree line where you know where trees just kind of cease growing and it's tundra. But we follow the footprints, and the footprint there was one footprint I remember in front of the tree trunk and one on the backside, which meant it stepped, whatever it was, stepped over the tree. At that point, boom, life changed. How, how big were these footprints? 16 to 17 inches long. Um, we didn't have a tape measure with us. I did film them. A lot of people think, well, why didn't he film them? I did film them. I actually did a TV story for a local, um, for Care 11 TV, and they entitled the news packages Mysteries of the North or whatever. But um, so we did a news package, but all of those tapes went to CARE 11, you know, my originals. And of course, I never got them back, even though I wanted them back. Um, but before I had, 
before they got lost, I did send Peter Byrne a copy of the video. And he was the first person I ever contacted in the Bigfoot field. And uh, to your knowledge, does Peter still have them or did he get rid of them or something? Or I have no idea. I would love it if he was. I think I'd asked him at one point and I think it came up, you know, he came up empty on it. But um, it's somewhere there's the original letter I got back from him on an old computer, you know, where he had basically had, had cited some sighting near that area back in the 1800s or something, because this is way up. You know, like I said, it's up in the Arctic, um, Northwest Territories. Now, Bobo, you got to explore parts of Alaska that kind of matches this same uh, landscape, right? Like out there on the coast of Alaska where there are almost no trees, but yet Sasquatch sightings abound. Is that correct? It's similar. Yes, real similar. I think it's a little little more forested where Doug was. I mean, they had stunted trees, but you know, we were out there west of Bethel. It was just tundra, but there was uh, little creeks and stuff that had heavier brush in them, but it was not a lot of cover for me. I mean, when they, when they went, they definitely had to travel in the open and people would, and the most reports we saw around there where people told us about was from the air, find those bush planes around they'd spot them in between the creeks on those tundra open spots where they couldn't hide. They'd just haul ass to the next Creek when the planes came. My theory is that they were up there hunting caribou. It was a huge caribou migration, a lot of caribou. Um, and you know, what a great prey animal. So I would imagine they're following the caribou herds. Makes sense. So uh, that kind of wet your whistle for the whole subject. Where did it lead you then, Doug? Okay. Well, first thing I did was um, got a hold of Peter Byrne, didn't get anywhere there. And then I got a hold of Matt Moneymaker. And of course, Matt filled me in. He did a big download in my head. You know, and Matt was going, yeah, these things live all over North America. And, you know, there's woods, water and hills took the time to educate me. Um, we actually became, you know, friends and started then to work on Legend Needs Science because I was extremely curious. You know, I just wanted answers, but I knew those answers would cost big money. You, you know, just to fly around and interview people and, and do forensic tests. I just had so many answers um, that I wanted an- or questions that I wanted answered. And Matt was really willing to, you know, spend time with me. And so we started pitching a show and we ended up getting Mysterious Encounters. So that's kind of how the whole switch from doing wildlife television to doing Bigfoot television happened. That's the best documentary ever. I mean, it still stands up 20 years later. I mean, what did that come out in 1999, something like that, didn't it? Yeah, it was, it was back in 2000, 1999. And I think about, you know, I had so many questions like, what are their fingerprints like? You know, and I I started studying the Patterson film and I'd always heard, oh, they have a compliant gait. But I was noticing things like um, the hips swaying and, you know, basically twisting, the thighs twisting, the legs bending outwards. And I wanted answers on that. Um, You know, I wanted um, basically science, you know, force science to give me definitive answers about the footprint sizes. Are they real? Are they not real? So I remember working with Hannah Fehrenbach, putting a bell curve together, and they actually matched the bell curve of a living species. You know, it was just so many cool things that we did, and many of them still hold up. There hasn't been a lot of, you know, really new, new, new breakthroughs in science on the topic. 
So I am planning and hoping to get the funding for Alleged Needs Science too, which I want to do. I've got so much material basically collected over the last 20 years that I think we can do a three-part, one-hour, you know, three one-hour uh, uh, parts or a series to it, to mini-series. That'd be awesome. Legend Meets Science uh, is, it does stand alone. It, it is by far the best uh, scientifically oriented Bigfoot um, documentary ever made, in my opinion. It, 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 you know what it, it lacks? It lacks the, the talking heads about what people saw. It has some of that in there, but it, it, there's more analysis. There's more actual footage. There's more testing and experimentation than anywhere else I've ever seen. So hats off to you. Um, and if you can make another one, my God, please count me in in any way I can possibly help. It, I would love to push this field forward in any way possible. So fantastic. Yeah, it kind of broke Meldrum too, didn't it? Wasn't that Meldrum's first big exposure? Yes, that was Jeff's first television, national television exposure. God, if you can make, if you get a series of three, I mean, shoot, you you had, I mean, you also did Monster Quest. You're a proven winner. You had the number one show. I mean, that was the number one show on History Channel. You had the number one show on Outdoor Life Network. I mean, it should be a shoe in for you. Well, I'm hoping, and Monster Quest is back on the air. Um, they've taken basically two shows and combined them into one, added a, a small amount of footage and a different narrator. But it's back on the air, um, and I really am hoping that will help, you know, get funding for this new one, because this new one would be really take everything to a whole new level. We have so much new evidence. For instance, you know, the smell. People have been reporting this horrible, rotten smell. Well, it's been my dream to collect that smell and then have it analyzed. Well, not only have, do we have the smell, because what we did was set a trap for them to handle and touch objects. And just got lucky enough that these objects stink so bad, I can't even describe it. And we've now frozen them so we can do gas chromatograph analysis. Um, we can do uh, fair, uh, olfactory analysis. So every odor starts with a compound, you know, a, a certain amount of chemicals. And that's just one example of 25 things that we want to do. And I can, you know, I'm very happy to go through some of them. Well, I don't want to keep any of it a secret. No, no secrets here, man. Spill it. No one listens to this anyway. Tell us everything you know. Exactly. <laughs> no. But, you know, my point is, is that I could use all the help I can get. For instance, we've collected this smell from one location. It makes far better science if we can get it collected in the same manner from another location. So, I would imagine a lot of diehard researchers, including just people who are interested in this topic, listen to your podcast. I would imagine you probably have the, you know, a huge audience. So if, if we go through some of these things, I would love to have other people, you know, pitch in and help get a hold of me. Well, what can we do? What can the, our listeners um, participate in? Like, what would you suggest they do to, in order to help this project fo go forward? Okay. Well, one of the things... Um, we're doing, we've, we've managed to get quite a few hairs. Well, I want to get the hairs, not for the mitochondrial DNA that's mainly done on hair, but I want to get a million base pairs from the follicle or any fat tissue that's uh, attached to the follicle. I have, I'm now working with a new DNA lab that can not only tell us what it is, you know, meaning, let's say it comes back, let's say they're human comes back human. Well, now we can run it through A&I and through these huge DNA databases 
and I can get how tall it was, what diseases it's subject to, what its IQ might be. Is it subject to any mental illnesses? Um, what hair color? What eye color? These are the things that we can move forward on now. This is a reality now. But these tests, as you know, are very, very expensive. But I'm now working with a lab that we can not only do it, but I also believe a, sci- a proper scientific paper, a new scientific paper can be published. And that's just one example. You know what I'm excited about uh, for the olfactory stuff, if you can get the uh, other sample from somewhere else, is the, watching the when they test it on humans that smelt, they can replicate it. And and how it because I've heard what uh, some scientists have said what, they, what people interpret as infrasound getting zapped could be a pheromone they secrete that causes a brain chemical reaction in us in our brain that makes us say like we hear like get out of here danger because we've evolved next to them and that we've learned to just it's in our it's in our DNA to be afraid when we smell that certain odor so I'd be interested to see that get tested yeah you're absolutely right Bobo. Um- People have been reporting, you know, these strange feelings, fear, confusion, and it certainly could be caused by some type of a pheromone or an odor or a chemical compound. We don't know. What's so exciting about Bigfoot research is we don't know anything. You know, we have a lot of theories, but it's so cool now that if we can bring some of those theories, you know, actually under a microscope, into, into a, a, a substance comparative so we can figure out, you know, what compounds are these? There may be some really cool break, breakthroughs that can happen just through doing a TV show because the funding is there, because the interest is there from the labs. You know, everybody needs publicity. Every lab has bills to pay. And if they can get some publicity, you know, it's a good thing. But like, for instance, let's talk about the smell. So what we've done basically is just taken peanut butter jars, which a lot of people had, you know, this wasn't our idea, that mentioned that they seemed alike. Some people have great luck with it. So you take a sealed peanut butter jar that's sealed and you put it up and you put it up in an area and you make it obvious. And if the jar lid gets unscrewed and gets the contents taken out, the lid put back on and you're in the middle of the forest and the jar smells horrible, like so bad that you, you can't even breathe. So now you've got a compound. You get that in a paper sack and then get it in a sealed baggie. Now you've actually captured the smell, plus you've captured other compounds. You may, capture, may have captured their fingerprints, which also I have a theory, and once again, it's just a theory, and I want to talk more about this fingerprinting, that they have some type of a different type of oil or, or chemicals in their oil. Um, because so many times people um, always constantly report through the years, and I just had a big, like, oh, my God, big, uh, I don't know, a light bulb go off in my brain. Because for years I've been looking at these fingerprints that people have been reporting on windshields, side windows, buildings, um, you know, house windows, and they always go, oh, it left these dusty fingerprints. They're always this kind of white cream colored. And then it hit me, just finally hit me. When you touch a dusty window, you take away the dust. You don't leave dust. If you take a clean window and you touch the window, you leave oil, but it doesn't leave a dust. You know, it doesn't leave dusty fingerprints behind. So then I went, oh my God, maybe there's a compound 
or a very heavy oil on their hands that may also have a different pH um, because I've gotten reports of these white fingerprints touching camera trap plastic and it actually embedding to the point where you can't even wash it off. So to me, that's really fascinating. That's something we can analyze. You know, uh, Cliff and I know this young lady up in Olympic Peninsula. She's a native of those on the res up there. And she had a story when she was in junior high that lived in the squatchiest, the most interactive place I've ever seen with squatches and humans, this little Indian village. And they, were, they were right in the middle of them. And she walked up on one and was sitting on the curb. It was, it was like a nursery like for uh, juvenile Bigfoots. There was about 13 of them there that hung around this village. And she one night walked up. It was sitting on the curb with its head. It had its knees pulled up to its chest and its um, arms on top of it wrapped around its knees and its head down on top of its arms and knees. And she walked up and touched it. And she said, then she realized, she said it was oily and stunk. And it stood up and it just stood up right in front, like right a foot from her stood up and, you know, it was a lot bigger than her. And she just freaked out and ran away. But she touched her. She was crying and screaming. She rubbed the tears from her eyes and she got that oil in her eyes and she went blind for three days. They were bloodshot red for like a month. She had to go to the hospital. And her vision, she had 20-20 vision. Her, her vision went to 2200 when they, she could see again. Yeah, it's, it's those types of stories that really basically tell me I'm maybe on the right track on that. Because I've heard so many witnesses say, oh, man, these things are really shiny. Their fur looks really oily, really shiny. And that tells me oil, oil, oil. So think about it. It makes sense. If you're out living in the wild, right, and you're exposed to elements, cold, rain, heat, sun, you're going to need a lot of um, oil, skin oil, that normally comes out of the hair follicle. You know, the, the oil comes out of these hair follicles. Well, who has more hair follicles than we do? Or bigger ones or more developed? It would be a Bigfoot. You know, we have tons of hair follicles too, but ours are very undeveloped um, compared to theirs. So so I would love to milk Bobo, you and Cliff, because you guys get so many reports, probably more than anybody. Um, I would love to hear any reports and just kind of discuss the kind of interesting things I'm interested in, because what it does is it just, one, it gets me more motivated, more excited to get science involved, and it gives me more stories to tell the scientists. So what I've been doing for a lot of, a lot of years, silently dealing with different scientists, not for TV, just me getting to know people. And that's been, to me, very, very important, probably more important than producing anything, is just producing acquaintances and friends who have access to labs, who are extremely smart in their own right, but they've ignored this topic. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Breaking up with your old wireless provider just got a whole lot easier thanks to Mint Mobile. They were the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, and now Mint Mobile is introducing their unlimited plan for just 30 bucks a month. Let that sink in a minute. An unlimited plan for 30 bucks. How much is your soon-to-be ex-wireless provider charging you? I was paying over $100 a month, but now 30 bucks a month, that's a big savings. Dude, it's going to save me almost $90 a month. 
And for people that hate their phone bill and are ready to cut ties with big wireless, Mint Mobile offers their premium unlimited plan for just 30 bucks a month. By going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings on to you and me. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. Break up with Big Wireless and switch to Mint Mobile's premium unlimited data plan for 30 bucks a month. To get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 30 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/bigfoot. That's mintmobile.com/bigfoot. Cut your unlimited wireless bill to 30 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/bigfoot. So, Doug, before we get too far down the road, I want to comment or at least ask you a couple of questions about some of the things you said. Uh, you mentioned the peanut butter jar, you know, if it's sealed and if it gets picked up and it stinks when you get it back. Um, you said to put it in a paper bag and then put it in a sealed baggie. So, are you saying you put it in a brown paper bag, like a grocery store bag or something, um, depending on what state you live in, I guess, um, and then you put, it, put that inside of a plastic bag? Is that the best way to preserve that? That is the best way to preserve olfactory or scent, but not necessarily DNA. DNA. Any DNA samples of any hair should be put into a paper envelope and then frozen. Now, what about the, you said that you were commenting about the oil on the hands and that sort of thing. Um, I, I actually have access to a location where the oil left by a possible Sasquatch handprint is still there. Um, what would I do as a field researcher to collect the material that you need for such uh, for testing like you're talking about here from a handprint that might be a year or two or three old? Okay. Well, if it's that old, probably scraping with a sterile tool into a paper envelope. Because remember, I'm not only trying to get DNA, but I'm also trying to get what is in the oil. And here's why. The reason I'm so interested in what's in the oil is because of the acidity. For instance, did you guys know our fingerprints or our oil off our fingers is more acidic than vinegar? People don't realize that. So let's say these things have a much stronger pH. And part of what's going on when they touch glass is it's actually etching the glass. Because glass has a lot of uh, silicon in it. It's very, very susceptible to acid etching. Plastic, certain types of plastic can be very reactive. Do you guys remember when you built a model when you were a kid and you used uh, this acetone glue to maybe glue two plastic pieces and it just melted it? Well, it's just a reaction. Styrene is very reactive. And so I believe, I'm still waiting to get an answer, believe it or not, on what plastic is is certain a camera trap made out of because it seems to be reactive with their their oil it's fascinating okay so scrape off scrape off any sort of residual oil into an, a paper envelope of some sort with a sterile tool i just got a i just got a great picture of a handprint in dust on a on a window from a car that's big sausage fingers and you can see the individual dermal ridges so the ones i'm really looking for guys are the ones that are white if you go and type in anybody who's listening, 
goes in and types Bigfoot fingerprints on either YouTube or images, you're going to see these finger, these pictures where the fingerprints actually look cream colored, kind of a beige. And that has not hit anybody yet. So why are they beige? Everybody goes, well, they're dust. It's dusty. It left dusty. And then it just, once again, it hit me. That ain't dust. There's no way that's dust. Don't work that way. That's a compound that they're leaving behind. And that's what I'm interested in. So if somebody finds a fingerprint on a glass, what I would recommend they do is photograph the heck out of it. Close-up, clear photos. Go get a friend who's got a good camera. If you don't if you don't have a good camera that can get, you know, close enough so we can see the fingerprint pattern. Then get a clean, sterile paper towel and try to rub it as much off as you can and don't touch the surface and then get that part of the paper towel into a, a, a paper envelope and then freeze it. Date it, freeze it, mark the location and so on. Yeah, one, one thing that you guys can do is just get the word out because it would help me so much because the more samples I get, obviously the more chance of success of collecting enough of this compound to break it down, figure out what is in it and how does it differ from humans? Because if it doesn't match any animals and doesn't match humans, it's just going to raise the bar, which is what all of us are trying to do. You know, we're not trying to necessarily prove it because I don't think we can but I think we can raise the bar, raise the bar and get more information. There's something I've always admired about your take on it is that you are going down the avenue of science um, and trying to test things and going to labs and going to, to people who know more than, than you do, you know, about various subjects and getting expert advice. Um, and, and really, a lot of people don't understand this. And I was... Uh, uh, delighted to find out this as well when we were hanging out together at the Minnesota Bigfoot Conference, is that you are in fact a published author in scientific journals. You don't have a PhD, maybe you have an honorary one by now, I don't know, I don't remember, but you are actually, you have actually co-authored papers with PhDs and had them published in scientific journals about a variety of wildlife. Yeah, I mean, my, my passion, Cliff, has always been, you know, wildlife and being curious about wildlife. What goes on in a beaver den when no one's around? Who's? And then all of a sudden I'll do a lot, of, a lot of research and go, oh, my God, not one person in history has ever put a camera in a beaver lodge. And I get a kick out of that going, how can that be? So then I'll do it. I'll figure out a way to get a camera in a beaver lodge. And, for instance, there's another scientific paper that will be published on that finding because we found another species another mammal living with the beavers. So it was muskrats. They're not only living with the beavers, but they're, they're um, grooming the beavers, looking for parasites in their fur, doing all the bedding. And the beavers then just work pretty much on the structure, on the top and the sides. You know, as the water levels rise, they're making the roof higher. As the water levels fall, they're making the floor lower. And beavers are kind of like man in a, in a way because they're really, they're using the heat from the ground to heat their homes, like we do. They're, they're building a structure and they're changing their environment by damming, by damming. So they're very much like humans. But they actually have, and I, once again, we don't know for sure that all beaver lodges have muskrats living in them, but I suspect most of them do. And that's something the Native Americans talked about, the relationship between the beavers and the muskrats, which is, you know, once again, pretty amazing. 
um, that they seem to know what went on in that beaver lodge before science did. And so there's a scientific paper being written on that. And I've got a scientific paper out that just recently got published in the Journal of Animals on black bear hibernation. That's something I've also been studying for 20 years now. It's amazing. Yeah, you've come up with a few. I mean, you've pioneered a few different kind of camera systems, that underwater bathospheric one. You came up with, I don't even, I can't even understand it all, but I know that you invented another camera system that people started using also. Yeah, I'm, I'm really into, like, how can we look into another dimension? And it's the same with Bigfoot, except with Bigfoot, I've had no breakthroughs, none. I, I'm still working on it, though. I still have a lot of ideas that are untested. But, you know, I, I built a camera system that went down on a very large squid in the Sea of Cortez and basically attached to the squid. The squid then brought the camera down. It was a Trojan squid. And we got the first video footage of a giant squid in the wild that was at minimum 54 feet long if it was an Architeuthis. But if it was a humble or a uh, yeah humble squid, it was 108 feet long. Confirmed. What? Those are the kinds of things that I enjoy doing. Um, back in '99, I built a camera system for Discovery Channel that had hyperspectral lighting. It had microscopic cameras on it to film copepods, these uh, little one-eyed animals. It had fish feeding systems so we could test fishes intelligence through playing music and different sounds and then we could squirt food out and it would basically then we could practice um their their skills by then playing music and seeing how far fish would come how long we knew how far they were coming from so we could also test how, how far away they could hear um sounds underwater because they, they for sure made a beeline you know when they knew there was food coming out of this uh, Benthic Explorer, it was called. And we had a sage meter, the world's first sage meter on it, to measure inland tide of Lake Superior. And I built this thing in my garage over a period of two years. I don't know why. I just get this, sometimes I'll just get a crazy idea and just go to work. Um, and then it was just probably, oh, God, only a week ago, I was messing around with holographs again because I've been developing a number of holographic systems. But I developed a holographic lens, and I don't—it's so cool and it works so well. I'm not sure what to do with it yet. Um, but it'll basically place holograms, you know, for instance, in a room anywhere you want through a camera, and you can see them with your eyes, and it'll film them. So it's—it's it's kind of interesting. But uh, I just—I love doing camera systems. Um, there was another one that I, I'm very proud of. That was basically a laser measuring lens. So you can do wildlife research and measure the size of animals above or below the surface without touching them. So what this is going to do is it helps scientists measure great white sharks, um, any marine animal without having to catch them and put them on deck and put a tape measure on them. So they can actually measure them extremely accurately without having to be invasive because that stuff always bothers me, you know, because ketamine and these drugs they use are very invasive. And I got motivated to do that because I actually got drugged and basically kidnapped in Russia, got ketamine, and I was sick for, God, almost three months. I was hallucinating and sick and 
And so I know what animals go through when they tranquilize them with ketamine. It's not, not fun. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So, Doug, I think it would be I'd be remiss if uh, we had you on the show and we didn't talk a little bit about the Snowgrove Lake stuff, because uh, at the Bigfoot Museum here, I, I probably get asked about that particular episode three or four times a month. You know, that, that everybody seems to know about it. Everybody seems to, to be aware that that was a great lead. But everybody wonders what happened at the end. Can you give us a little bit of background, maybe what happened out there and what has come from that um, just to settle it all once and for all, so everybody will have the answer directly from the source with no rumors or hearsay. Sure, sure, love to. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people that kind of get it wrong. You know, they'll report on it or do a video on it, and it's kind of right, but some things are wrong. So Snow World was just basically a place I was going to as a vacation. Back in the early 90s, I went there to do a story for a local network on this luxury cabin in the forest in the middle of nowhere and the reason i say luxury it has a on-demand hot water system yeah it pumps water from the lake it's got a solar system so it's got you know some small 12 volt lights in it but the fact that you can be in the middle of nowhere take a hot shower at the end of the day you've got a gas stove and you have a gas refrigerator and the refrigerator runs on solar power and gas so it was luxury you have bunk beds, and you got this little cabin up on blocks, but you have everything you, a guy could ever need. The fishing's amazing. So I was going up there over and over and over again. And the only hint I ever had there was any Bigfoot around there was in a journal. There was a journal, and somebody had reporting finding 16-inch triple E footprints at one of the portages. And I say a portage because Chuck had some boats. The camp owner had some boats kind of far away that you'd have to portage over a couple of lakes. And he had a couple of boats and he had gas there. They could go into some lakes. Well, they had found these big clear footprints in the mud at one of the portages. But other than that, I kind of put it out of my mind because it's such a vast wilderness. I never even saw wildlife up there. I knew there were bears. I knew there were caribou. I knew there were moose. I knew there were all sorts of, there, there were cougar up there, bobcats, you know, um, fishers and all sorts of animals, but I never saw one. In fact, the only animal I saw in like 15 years, swear to God, was one seagull. One seagull that hung out at the camp. That's how vast of a wilderness it is. So I didn't put much thought of Bigfoot. I'd go up there. Sometimes if the cabin was hot, I'd go pull the futon mattress out on the dock and sleep out on the dock under the stars. Um, so anyhow, so I was going there often. Well, one time I decided to bring my daughter and asked if other people wanted to bring their daughters. So three of us brought our daughters because we always brought our sons and men. You know, it was kind of a men's only thing. So with, um, with that in mind, so now we've got these three young girls up there. And they're pretty harmless, obviously, and giggly and fun. And we took them into a lake we call Hidden Lake. Um, you literally cannot even see the opening of the lake. It's just a little stream. You have to pull through the stream and go back, you know, quite a ways, uh, half a mile, and then you get to this lake. So we were coming out of the lake, and my daughter was being goofy. 
and she was doing monkey sounds of all things. And she said it, I asked her why she did it. She said it helped her catch walleyes. Every time she did it, she'd catch a walleye. So she was doing this while we were pulling out of this creek into the main lake. And all of a sudden there was a big wood knock right next to the boat. And I went, oh my God, kind of my, you know, my, my heart sunk at that point going, that was a wood knock, you know, it was clear. And so I told everybody, Vlad, Joe, and myself, I said, we're going to wood knock tonight. I had never done it up there. So we waited until like two in the morning. We're around a campfire. It was me, Joe, Vladimir, and Joe's daughter, Maria, who was the oldest one that was there. And so we did a wood knock, did another one, did another one. We waited. Ten seconds later, there is a wood knock right near the campfire, right behind some black spruce that were, you know, 20 feet away from us. And so you should have seen these other guys. I mean, I was shocked too, but these other guys kind of turned white because they were all skeptical. You know, they thought, oh, that'll be the end of that. So at that point, we had an exchange of rocks, you know, and I told Maria to throw rocks underhand. And so there were rocks that were thrown underhand and rocks that were coming back at us underhand, you know, very lightly landing at our feet. So this was really cool and Definitely convinced those two that this thing was real. So we went in the cabin to turn in after that whole excitement was over. I was really wound up and my adrenaline was was uh, at all-time level. But I'm trying to read a Field and Stream magazine from like 1980, really boring, sitting by candlelight until I got tired. They all went to bed. I stayed up. So then finally, when I started getting tired, I went up to the, up to the window which the sink was at, and there was a little fluorescent light above my head. And I flicked that switch on to see if I could, where I could find my toothbrush and my shaving bag. And that, it literally, the second I turned it on, all hell broke loose outside the cabin. Screaming, yelling, banging on the cabin. Um, I heard running on the roof, but the screams were, were sounding to me like a number of different animals. It wasn't just coming from one spot. It was like stereo screaming. Sounded like they were fighting. And of course, I'm hearing running on the roof. So I, I look and I think, oh my God, the skylight's open. Whatever's on the roof is going to get in the cabin. So there was a big, long 10-foot pole. I immediately grabbed the pole in a panic to get that skylight shut because it was wide open to let the heat out. And so... I get the skylight shut, and at that point, now the cabin is being lifted and rocked. And, you know, when I say lifted, I mean lifted, physically shook back and forth and lifted off its blocks. I couldn't imagine the strength it would take. Yeah, it's not a big cabin, guys, but but it's being lifted. I can see the floorboards flexing. So I'm, I'm, I'm like in this, trying to gather up what in the world is going on. I'm scared out of my mind. I run into the, the guy who is from Ukraine and I start beating on his back and I cannot get him to wake up. So I got even more scared at that point. I run into Joe's room and start beating on him on his back. And I got him to kind of groan a little bit, but not wake up. And the action is still happening, but then it quit. Just like you could snap your fingers and it stopped. Got all quiet. So that was kind of the start of everything. Um, I reported it to the to the lodge owner, 
I reported it um, to him in a way where I was totally honest. I just told him what happened. And then I asked him about a nail board that was on the back of the cabin that was leaned up against the cabin, but the nails were facing outwards or the screws. And he said, well, you know, the cabin got wrecked. And I said, no, I didn't. How would I know that? He said, there's no, there's, you know, there's no damage I could see inside. He said, well, something had gotten into the cabin and destroyed the inside of the cabin and bent the pipes, flipped over the stove, flipped over the refrigerator, tore up and broke every piece of plastic and playing cards and paper. I mean, there was just debris all over the floor, all over the floor. And he's telling me he had videotape of it for the insurance company. And I'm, He's definitely got my ears per- perked up because I told him, I said, Chuck, if it was a bear that broke into the cabin, there would be bite marks and scratches all over because everything looked normal inside. And I, I was very qualified in telling him that everything was exactly the way it used to be because they'd gone there for so many years. So he said um, they had put a, a nail, a screw board out as a, basically they call it a welcome mat, but it's to prevent bears from getting in there. You know, they're not, nothing's going to step on it. They're going to feel it, and then it's going to back off. Well, something had actually stepped on it. And he said there was blood, and there was, you know, what could be flesh on the thing. And I, then I went, of course, immediately to examine it, took the board, put it in the shed, and because we couldn't carry it in the plane, there was no room. And I said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to bring some scientists up. And it took a while to get the funding and to get History Channel to agree to it. But then we brought Jeff up and um, Kurt Nelson from the University of Minnesota. We came up and then we had action too. Of course, the cabin got attacked. Not as violently as my little, uh, my window segment. And I was going to add one thing I forgot to mention. I have white hair. So I can only imagine when I flick that light on, if there were creatures right outside that window, that I scared them. Because I couldn't see them, but they could see me. And I looked probably like a, you know, who knows what to them. Maybe they were a foot away from the window. And um, they got very startled because, like I said, it was an instant attack. And so, you know, beyond that, I'm not sure what questions you guys have. Maybe you can fire some at me. If I remember correctly, wasn't uh, the sample tested? Yes, we did collect it. Jeff came up, Kurt came up, and the, the sample was tested it was very degraded. First up, Todd uh, Dissetel tested it and couldn't get anything. Kurt Nelson did it in his lab, and he's a geneticist. He used other primers. He got DNA out of it, I think only like 400 base pairs were near there. But there were, I believe, once again, it's quite a long time ago, there were four or five base pairs that were actually the same ones that are different from humans to chimpanzees. And of course, that raised my eyebrows because there's certainly no chimps in Canada that I know of. And so it needed to be redone. But I, for what reason, I have no idea. I didn't have any of the samples. It never got redone. Those samples may still exist. And it would either be Jeff or Kurt that has those samples. And I would love to get a hold of more and run them through you know, more modern day testing with because they have so much better techniques you know for coaxing out old dna it's much improved and that screw board is still up at the cabin is that correct um yes it's still probably up there would imagine it's still sitting sitting up at the cabin in the shed (laughs) 
I should go to your museum, Cliff. That should go. I I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> you know, they're not letting anybody in. So we were planning on going this year because the, the key is to that cabin. And the reason it all makes sense now, I used to go, I was June 8th. Every year I would go June 8th. And sometimes I would go in September, but I never went in August. So finally, I traded with a guy. He wanted my June 8th slot. So he would go up there in June, and I got his in August. But August is when the blueberries are ripe. But August 7th, they're ripe. Well, the one year, we, the only year we didn't have action was the year the blueberries weren't ripe. But it was interesting because 100 miles away, there were some Native women who were picking blueberries who had a really good sighting about, you know, 50 air miles south in there. So that was interesting to me. So you definitely want to time it to the blueberries getting right. And I think that was in another episode, like the return to Snellgrove Lake, if I remember. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Nice. Well, the first time I brought my son Blaine up there, the cabin was attacked. We had rocks thrown at the cabin at the roof. But what really scares you is when, you know, in the middle of the night, or in the middle of the morning, almost three, four in the morning, all of a sudden you get the boom, you know, or something's getting thrown big and heavy at the cabin. And the whole cabin shakes. Well, my son was so afraid, and he was pretty young. I, I remember him crawling under the bunk bed, which was full of spiderwebs. He hates spiders like everybody. Most people do, and they're not going to want to be, you know, crawling in a bunch of cobwebs and spiderwebs. And he crawled under the bed because he was so afraid, and then started to go into shock. I mean, it is scary being up there because, you know, you're protected by thin plate glass, doors that don't even have locks, and they're just hollow, thin doors, you know. So if something wanted to get in there, it wouldn't be a problem. So, Doug, you're like us. You've been around, you know, all over North America doing stuff when you're on mysterious encounters and stuff like that. Where do you think, is Snowgrove Lake, is that the best place you've been for Sasquatch activity, like for a spot that's go-to that you can count on something happening usually if it's the right time of year? Probably, but, you know, I've been in other active areas. Um, Skookum Meadows is certainly very active, had a lot of things happen there. But what's so cool about Snellgrove is it's such a wilderness area. I'm sure that these things have seen people and hunters quite a bit, but they, but they also know their patterns. They know they come up to go fishing, or in late fall they come up go moose hunting or caribou hunting, and then they go to bed in this cabin. And these things sneak around, you know, and then they also know the pattern. One of the rules, you have to get rid of all your perishables, which is all your fruit, all your any meat that isn't eaten, any eggs that isn't eaten, you know, any perishables, you have to t- leave them there. So you put them out, you know, 100 feet back in the woods. And I would imagine they've, they've recognized every three to four days a new group comes in. And when they leave, they're going to get all this food thrown out, all these interesting foods they would never be able to get in that wilderness. And so they're very curious. I would imagine these things have spent a lot of time observing people but never interacting with them. And here we were with the first group to maybe interact you know, we were doing wood knocks. And obviously they may have remembered our group doing the wood knocks. Who knows? Maybe they had it in for us. You know, so I was this guy that they had come face to face with. But you got to remember, I got up there years. Nothing had ever happened because I never did wood knocks. 
They never did anything. And so it was, it was interesting, the change in behavior. But there were other places I've had, you know, some kind of scary, had rocks thrown at me in Skookum Meadows um, numerous times. Um, there were times where we were in upstate New York where we had chest beating near, nearby. They kept coming closer and closer to us. It gets, it gets a little unnerving. But never had that kind of like B horror movie response. That's where it gets really weird. You know you might die. You know, you feel like you are. But in the end, everybody walked away. So there's no doubt, guys, that these things operate on fear. You know, like a black bear. They're very much, they're very much afraid of us, but they're very much curious. So are bears, you know. But I can get into a situation where a black bear can be habituated quite easy. You can take any wild bear, and if you just kind of keep talking soft, maybe bring a little food with you, I'm not, t- I'm not telling people to do this because, you know, this certainly could be danger in it. But a black bear is one of the few animals as it gets, you know, because it's so intelligent, you can tame it as an adult, as you can a chipmunk. So black bears and chipmunks, you take a while and you can, they can be tamed. Um, a Bigfoot, we don't know, but they seem to be curious and intelligent, extremely intelligent. They seem to mind, don't mind far away interaction. You know, they're curious. Yeah, people talk about gifting, and I've done some of that too, and that's interesting. They seem to want some type of interaction, but it's from afar and only from afar. You know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna come up and shake your hand. So along those lines, Doug, uh, since you have traveled the country and you've seen so much and you have such a scientific and curious mind, um, you've certainly spent some time on at these like long-term witness or, you know, quote unquote, habituation homesteads. I mean, Snell Grove Lake could really be considered one because uh, the, the Bigfoots have figured out the human patterns and there's free food there every like once or twice a week, et cetera. You know, this is one of those situations. What have you noticed from other sites in across the uh, North America? What do they have in common? What do they do differently? What do you think works and wouldn't work if you were doing that around your home or rural property or something? Well, one of the things that seems to work is one, no matter where we were, they're attracted to children. Find you know they're they're curious about kids, and I think if you think about it, if they see a, an adult with a child, they're probably not going to be deer hunting. They're probably not going to be armed. They're probably, they see the, you know, they can observe the interaction between adult and child. So I think there's some curiosity and paternity. The other thing I, patterns I saw that were very consistent were relationships, either good or bad with coyotes. Coyote calls, in fact, there was one call that I used from New York to the, to the West Coast that seemed to get a response. So I found that interesting. And so I've, you know, certainly with me studying animal relationships between ravens and wolves or, you know, coyotes and maybe Bigfoot or wolves and Bigfoot, I think is something really interesting because if a Bigfoot has a relationship with a coyote or a coyote pack, there's going to be advantages. Obviously, a coyote pack is probably going to have a better, better hearing, better sense of smell than maybe a Bigfoot would. And it would make sense that they would work together. So there would be responses that we would get all over the country. Yeah, I mean, we just don't know. But to me, I'm very interested in trying to figure out a way, how can we test 
or how can we observe a relationship between a Bigfoot and Coyote? Crap, we can't really, other than the element of surprise, like Roger Patterson did, there isn't a lot of footage, and how can we figure out if there's some relationship going on? I mean, I've certainly got anecdotal evidence firsthand. And one of the stories, Cliff, I think I told you this story. We were, we were up in Canada, and we were grouse hunting with bow and arrow. And we were on this week-long trip. One night, I heard a pack of wolves. These were not coyotes. These were timber wolves because we had spotted them in the area running through the middle of our camp. You could hear them panting. You could hear them one after another come charging through our camp. And then one night, I hear, I feel the ground shaking. The ground in Canada is kind of, you know, it's a lot of buried rocks and it's quite hollow. And so I'm feeling my cot shake. And here comes boom, 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 through the camp. And I just thought, oh my God, there was a Bigfoot. It had to be a Bigfoot chasing a pack of wolves through the camp. And we were not doing Bigfoot research there. We were just grouse hunting. I was with a hunter. That was our purpose. We didn't do any wood knocking or, you know, there was no attraction, nothing. We were just hunting. And so I found that very interesting. But there was another time I was on a deer stand and I was hunting and we were stationed about maybe a quarter mile apart from three other hunters. And I smelt this gagging smell and then I hear chest beating, very loud chest beating. But when I went back to our meeting point for lunch, every single other hunter had the same exact story. What was that stench and what was this boom, 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 boom sound that we all heard? And so we were all kind of surprised all of us had experienced that. So chest beating has actually been a pattern. I don't hear that reported by many witnesses. But if you do the right things out in the field, which I find this one coyote call elicits chest beating. And we're not talking about, you know, a grouse beating. We're talking like you can feel the pant legs shaking. You know, you can feel the vibrations. These are loud, powerful, gorilla-like chest beatings. And they're actually a little bit slower than gorilla. So it's very interesting. So Bobo, you and I heard chest beating that one time up at the headwaters um, above Bluff Creek. Remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was quite close and actually wasn't all that. It was boom, 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 about that fast, if I remember right. Yeah, I probably heard it five times. and It's always been like, like that. Yeah, and I, I believe uh, I'd have to double check and go search my notes. But I think they're actually citing reports of the same behavior. What's really interesting is when you can call them closer and closer and they'll beat their chest every time closer to you until it's almost on top of you. And that's when it gets really unnerving when you know they're 50 feet away and they're beating their chest. But when they started out, they might have been a mile away or a quarter mile away. And so they're coming in out of curiosity. And so the question is, are they coming to check the coyotes out? Are they coming to chase away a a competing coyote pack, or are they coming because they know there's a human doing a coyote call? You know, are they that smart? They know it's fake. I don't know. I have no idea. But it's been consistent. I think it depends who's doing the coyote calls, because I think if you're really good at it, you can fool them for a while, but it's hard to fool them much. I mean, and once you fool them once, they're, they're kind of like the, they're not fool me once, fool me twice. They're fool me once, and that's it. Well, I would use, I would use um, recorded ones you know, on these game callers that were canned, you know, um, 
And the ones that seemed to be the most effective are the ones that sounded like almost like a coyote in, 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 in distress, like a, call, a coyote calling for its mate that isn't answering, that type of a call. And that seemed to be the most effective. What, uh, Bigfoot, what Bigfoot behaviors have you noticed, Doug, of, that you didn't know about before, like you never heard anyone else talk about or read about? Did, has there been anything like that happen? Yeah, no, I, you know, I would say I've heard of quite a variety. One of them I find the most interesting, and that is because we're dealing with three different parts of the country. We have the East Coast, we have the West Coast, and then we have the center, but then we have the South and the North. And I'm really interested in what do they do with the changing seasons? And so that pattern I'm always looking for, what time of year, was it a mild winter? Was it a hot summer? You know, I'm always trying to pay attention to the temperature. For instance, today I heard from a a witness that saw it in the winter, 2011. But I checked the weather records and they, oh, they saw it in February. So it's kind of, you know, still pretty cold. But it happened to be a balmy day in February. And that winter happened to be our fourth warmest winter on record. Because you don't get too many winter sightings. One, they'd be really easy to spot footprints. But um, two, you know, what are they going to eat? They're going to eat deer. They're going to eat some kind of small game, maybe mice. There's not a lot of protein even around. And, you know, obviously the brutal cold. In Minnesota, 30, 40 below isn't uncommon. And it gets cold. But this guy happened to see it in February, and it happened to be a very balmy. In fact, the day it happened, the guy didn't even have a coat on. And... The sighting happened in February during the fourth warmest winter on record. So do they go north and south? Do they, do they travel with the ripening berries? Do they, do they travel when they're not sick? Um, do the sick stay put? Do the old stay put? Do the young stay put? What's going on here? Because in your area, in your neck of the woods, it's pretty temperate all year. You know, they may go to the higher elevations or lower elevations. So you're not going to see that kind of pattern. But I really wonder in like, you know, the middle of the United States, where do they go? And so those are patterns that I'm looking for constantly. And I have to say, do I know anything? Nope. The, um, the one thing we, we do know about them is that they seem to be very individual. You know, they seem to be their own, their own creature, their own person, their own personality. You know, I, I had that same question when I, we were traveling on finding Bigfoot, especially when we went to Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan and that sort of thing. It's like, where, what could they do to survive these winters? Because they are, your winters are harsh, you know, especially for a soft guy like me. Um, and But what we did notice is that when we started plotting sighting reports on maps and looking at for patterns, one of the things that developed is that um, many of the sightings during wintertime came from cedar swamps in places that the water just doesn't freeze. And uh, I later learned that apparently that's where the deer also go during that same time if they can't get out of the area. Uh, So I think that's a possibility um, and certainly something that should be checked further with uh, further data. But as you were talking, what what I noticed about you, Doug, and this is something I admire about you, and I want to let you know about it, is that you approach this in a way of just questioning what could be going on? You have all these questions you want answered. Um, I, I think a lot of people don't even start with that. They just go out to start looking for them and hoping that by seeing one, 
they'll suddenly know a lot of things about them, you know? And I know, I know a lot of witnesses that actually feel that way. It says, well, Cliff, you would never understand because you've never seen one cl- up close and clear. So, well, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't know how much that has to do with my, my desire for these questions to be answered. Um, but it's something I, I think that uh, more Bigfooters would benefit from is like starting with a few questions. Where do they go in the wintertime? Where do they go during the summertime? That's another equally valid question. I, Bluff Creek you know, uh, is a good example because it's 115 degrees there in August. Where would they go to deal with that? Um, so anyway, I think that's a great, great model for the rest of the Bigfoot community that uh, you're starting with legitimate questions and then hypothesizing about answers and then testing. You're basically doing the scientific process every step of the way. So congratulations, man, and good for, good for all of us that we're listening to you do it. Thanks, Cliff. Um, I've got so many questions that I, I know I'm never going to live long enough to probably even get one answered. One, one of the real big questions, too, I have, we have probably, and I'm just guessing here, but we may have a million camera traps out in the forest right now. Maybe it's a hundred thousand. I, I have no idea, but it's we know it's a lot, and they're sprinkled throughout the forest, at least in the more hunting, you know, in the hunting areas, in the areas that are accessible by people. But how in the world are these things beating all these camera traps? We have some that are interesting, that but they're still kind of gray. We're not really, you know what I mean? They're not these clear for sure, one hundred percent. That's a bigfoot, right? So what I'm challenging, I'm going to challenge everybody listening, get a hold of your local camera trap company, put it on their lap, force them to answer why we're not getting questions. Because, you know, even they have to admit there's something going on here. You can put bait up, way up in a tree or wherever, and you can, it, it takes a photo of you putting it up, you retrieving the, the card, it takes photos of deer, squirrels, blah, 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 but it doesn't get what took the bait. And you're in an area that's got sightings. Put it in their lab because they're the technicians. They're the ones that know about, do they have a UV filter? Do they have IR filters? What's their shutter speed? What's their passive um, sensor speed? You know, this may lead to a whole bunch of camera trap companies that go, hey, we know exactly what's going on. You know, who knows? Um, And that's why I'm just trying to approach that too right now because all of us have access in certain areas to cell phone camera traps that are going to send you a photo. But why not have these photos sent to these camera trap companies? Let them deal with it. Let them see in real time what's going on. Because if it's just a regular bear or a Bigfoot stone exists, then what in the world is taking the bait? Put it in their lap. They're the ones making these things, if that makes sense. No, you're basically saying let the market drive the research. And I think that's a valid point of view because they have the biggest vested interest in this whole thing. I mean, can you imagine if Moultrie or Reconyx or Browning or one of these trail cam companies managed to produce a camera that would like once a year got a nice clean shot of a Sasquatch that would propel them to be the number one camera company in the entire world for decades? You are absolutely right. The camera company that gets the best photo is going to be, you know, they're going to be put on the map. So I agree 100%. So you'd be surprised if some of the people listening get a hold of their camera trap company, talk to them, educate them, do a download, take the time to make the call, because if you don't make the call, they're certainly not going to get involved. You can get a camera trap scientist to get involved, you know, the ones that are designing these these, um, 
these machines, and they're they're marvelous, but they're they're getting beat, and I don't know, I don't have no idea why. People are saying, well, they're supernatural, or they're this, or they're that. Okay, that that could be true, but it may not be true. Maybe they have, maybe they can see the passive sensors, which they shouldn't be able to, because there's really no, there's no lighting. Yeah, they, they, the sensors put out um, nothing. They absorb energy. And then, yes, it'll cause a LED flash or an IR flash, and they may spot that. But that doesn't explain how they're beating it, you know, because literally a camera trap's just sitting there. It's not really even on. It's going to get turned on by the passive sensor that absorbs energy, electrical energy or heat energy from the creature um, or motion or changes in temperature. It's going to sense something, then it's going to flip on. So that doesn't really explain to me how are they beating it. And so everybody jumps to the paranormal, but I'm not there yet. I'm still like, well, we've got a lot of long ways to go before we get there. I'll go out on a limb and say jumping to the paranormal is a cop-out. You know, I feel pretty strongly about that. Because my own experiences, I've never ex- been around Bigfoot a fair amount, never experienced anything paranormal. Um, and, you know, I'm, maybe they are paranormal, but uh, gosh, I sure need some convincing on that realm. But I think it's a cop-out. Um, just like, oh, well, th- th- we, don't, we can't explain it, so it belongs in the unexplainable. No, that's ridiculous. We just haven't thought of the right question to ask. Uh, there's one gentleman in Wisconsin that asked interesting questions, like maybe these are making sounds. Um, and he actually listened to a variety of uh, uh, game cameras, um, I think in the ultrasonic range, so above human hearing and frequency. And it turns out that they all scream. They're all really, really loud with this whiny sort of hiss sort of thing. Um, he found one brand, um, you know, it happened to be like the very expensive Reconyx sort of things, the hyperfires. And this is like, you know, five or 10 years ago. So, so who knows what's going on now? The experiment needs to be redone. But he found that those were the quietest of them all. So he actually, he invest, invested quite a bit of money into a fleet of those with no real results. So maybe there is something else going on. But I think that was an excellent start. And it always starts with the question, you know, what is going on? Could it be the hearing? Could it be smell? I, I, I doubt it personally because uh, primates aren't renowned for their amazing sense of smell. But I sure think that hearing has a lot to do with it. And, and that's my gut level feeling at this point. But uh, again, I haven't gone out to do experiments and collect data on this yet. But I think that's the direction to start sniffing. What if these things have a super ability to detect EMF? There are animals that can detect you know, not only EMF but magnetic fields. No doubt there's a magnetic field coming off these these camera traps, but that still doesn't, let's say they detect them, but it still doesn't explain how they're not capturing when the bait is taken. You know, I'm working with a number of these, what they call habituation sites, with some people I really, you know, I trust them. Um, I don't think they, they're not going off half cocked saying every bush is a Bigfoot. They're not sending me pictures of a bunch of pine needles on the ground saying, oh, there's... There's a Bigfoot laying there. You know, these are these are legitimate people who are just wanting answers. <clears throat> they're very much like I am. But they're having activity, and I'm kind of coaching them on what some things to do. And I enjoy doing that from a standpoint. I get to try different things. But there are so many times we've had bait taken that could not be a bear, could not be any other animal, but no photos. And it's extremely frustrating. Um, 
And we are hoping to be working on this one particular, actually two different locations come next spring with a camera trap company because they're, you know, they want answers too. They're interested. Like you said, Cliff, they're, they're financially motivated. Would give them an amazing amount of publicity to get clear, close-up, sequential photos of a Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah. Let the market drive the technology like it always has. I thought of that earlier when you said that uh, um, really a lot of the research, or at least you alluded to, a lot of the research now is being done by television. You know, you're looking for funding from television um, produce, production companies and whatnot to go chase down these scientific leads. Uh, Lauren Coleman co- uh, co- commented on that same thing, like the reality TV is essentially driving Bigfoot research at this point, or at least a lot of the um, paranormal research in general. Uh you know, as best they can, unfortunately, you know, you know, TV is, it's not always all that true, unfortunately, in a lot of productions, but nonetheless, um, yeah, the, the market does drive a lot of this stuff. Um, and I think you're right by putting that squarely in their laps because who understands their product better, but the people who make it. Yeah, exactly. One of, one of the, the new things I want to do, okay, we have artificial intelligence. The databases that artificial intelligence uses is growing. Nobody has taken and given an AI deep learning program all of the data off of Bigfoot. What do we know? We have the Patterson footage. We can get joint indexes. We have tons of footprint casts. We have fingerprints. We have DNA information coming, so on, so on. Why can't deep learning make a decision and tell us whether they're real? Wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't that raise the bar? If AI can say, these things are real 100%. And then it could even rate it. Maybe it's maybe there maybe AI will come to the conclusion Bigfoots are real. You know, there's a 98% chance. I don't know what it's going to come out to, but I do plan on being one of the people involved in it. Um, one of the things I'm looking for right now, anybody's listening and they are over seven foot tall, seven foot five, God knows. I need data, DNA data on tall people. It's one of the things we're desperately looking for. If anybody's out there and knows people, I would love to hear from people because we can get them out a DNA kit. It can be anonymous. We'd love a picture of them from behind with a tape measure. But um, other than that, they just have to spit into a tube and get it to us. And then we can add to the database of tall people. Yeah, Doug, my good buddy up there in Minnesota, Jeff is the uh, media director for the Timberwolves. I'm sure he'd love to help out on that. Yeah, these are the kinds of things. In fact, it was one of the things I wanted to talk to you, Bobo. You're pretty tall, um, and you're you know your your tallness is not terribly uncommon. But you know what am I going to have to do? Run ads in newspapers all over the country? This is a great way to get the word out. I don't need to get a ton of people, but if I can get a hundred people who are six, let's say six five to you know seven foot plus. It will help tremendously because there's certain DNA markers now in databases that can now, you know, use that information to come to a conclusion on DNA on how tall these things are. So once again, anytime you can weed out, you know, provide DNA and then it go, oh, this thing's eight foot tall. Now, that once again, it's not going to prove it, but it's going to raise the bar. Well, Doug, where can people reach you if they want to participate in this or if they have any other data that they'd like to share with you or ideas or is there a way that people can get a hold of you, like a website or an email address or anything? Yeah, I have a website, but it's it's a password protected website. 
for numerous reasons, but I do, I can be happy to give out my email address. And that would be D as in Doug, and then high check my last name, and then you at usinternet.com. That is spelled H A J I C E K. Hey, Doug, thanks so much for joining us. We got to have you back. I, mean, I know you got so much more information and ideas. And also, you spent quite a bit of time with Moneymaker on the road. So I know you got some funny stories about that. So we're definitely going to have you back. Or if you have any big breakthroughs on any of these things you're talking about, we'd love to be the first to hear about it. Yeah, it sounds great, Bobo. Um, I really enjoyed talking. Um, hope I didn't talk too much. No, that's what you're supposed to do. It's a podcast. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to have you on for a long time. And, you know, I barely I barely know you. I mean, we started communicating just this past year, really, um, maybe a few times on email in the years before. But having hung out with you at the Minnesota Bigfoot Conference was an absolute pleasure. Um, just, and thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's, it's great to have guests and we, we have a lot of guests, but you're, you're, you stand out amongst them because you have been published. You have all these questions. You have such a scientific mind. You have all this experience and you just have this curiosity that will not be satisfied by anything probably in, in our lifetimes. And I think that's just so neat and so refreshing. You were a fantastic guest. So thank you so much, Doug, for taking the time to speak to us. Yeah, thank you. I can only say this. Curiosity changed my life, and I'm just hoping more people can can kind of follow in that because curiosity doesn't do anything but lead to good things. Unless you're a cat. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Doug. Well, thank you so much. You take it easy now. Thank you. Bye, guys. You did great, Bobes. That was a fantastic guest. This is the kind of stuff that gets me so excited is the real hard science. Yeah, it makes me want to get out there in the field and, you know, I guess sit in an empty forest and hope one's around. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. So if anybody if anybody out there has information where we can track some of this stuff down, by all means, write us uh, write us on the podcast email. Was it Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast at Gmail? We can get the stuff to Doug in case you miss his email address. Or just go back and listen to it again. Doug's email address is in there. We're looking for answers to the questions. So help us out and help Doug out. And Bobo, you sure helped us out, man. Doug was a great guest. Yep. Uh, it's going to be, I always say this, but it's going to be hard to top that one. That's, that is going to be pretty tough to top. I mean, from his TV to the science to, I mean, we didn't even get it. He, he has a bunch of information on the Minnesota Iceman and stuff like that. I mean, oh, geez, we I totally forgot about that. <sighs> yep. So we, we'll have him back. Okay. Well, I hope so. Yeah. He was great. Okay, folks, thanks for joining Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We really appreciate it. And please share with friends and family co-workers, relatives, whoever. Complete strangers. Yeah, and if you don't like us, share it with your enemies. We'll take what we can get. But until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 